Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 18, English Standard Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today, we're going to continue with the series we recently started on Anchored by Truth that we're calling Truth and Proof. As we mentioned in our first couple of episodes, This series was inspired by a teaching series that Dr. Greg Alexander did for his Sunday school class a few years ago. The reason we call this series Truth and Proof is because we're going through a step-by-step reasoning process to show that it is possible to know the truth and prove that the Christian faith is strongly supported by logic, reason, and evidence. We're following Dr. Alexander's teaching approach because he did a magnificent job of clearly establishing the truth and proof of the Christian faith. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., where are we headed today? Well, before we get too far along, I would like to welcome all the listeners to the show today, and I would like to thank them for joining us. This is another one of the series on Anchored by Truth, that is really requiring our listeners to engage their brains and to think very deeply about their faith. And we know that this can take some extra effort, but we strongly believe that those who do that will be richly rewarded for doing that. Not only because will they come to a deeper and richer understanding of their own faith, but also because in making that effort, they are being obedient to the command that Jesus gave us in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 30. In the New Living Translation, that verse says, quote, And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Unquote. So this series is one in which we are certainly giving listeners a chance to love the Lord with all their minds. Well, that is definitely true. But also in diving more deeply into the underpinnings of their faith, the listeners are also making a determined effort to love the Lord. That's strength. And in doing so, they are also demonstrating that they want to have a deeper relationship with the author of their salvation. So that's also expressing their heart's desire. So when listeners take the time, energy, the trouble, if you will, to really try to delve more deeply into the basis for their faith, especially understanding how that faith is coherent in the face of a world that would like to take it away from them, Well, I think that is loving the Lord with all their heart, with all their mind, and with all their strength. And the reason we believe they will be rewarded is because all of that represents one form of obedience to the Lord, and the Lord rewards obedience. And in a certain sense, it is just as hard or harder to be obedient to the Lord when it comes to the use of our time and our minds as it is with the use of our money. And that's also true. You know, a lot of times when we think about what we are called to give to the Lord, we tend to think primarily in terms of our money. 
And sometimes we will also think in terms of our time, whether we're going to volunteer at church or a homeless shelter or another parachurch ministry. Well, certainly all of those things are very important. But when we apply ourselves to studying our faith more deeply, that is also a sense in which we are giving to the Lord. And we're giving to the Lord when we take our own time to study His Word and the basis that underpins His Word in a very personal and intimate way. Because we are putting ourselves into that study. I don't want to minimize the importance of giving to the church, but it only takes a minute or two to write a check or to do an online donation. And serving at a church or a parachurch ministry may take more time, but it may or may not fully engage our minds. You know, I can go mow the church lawn, or I can help with the bake sale, and my mind is still not necessarily fully engaged in the things of God. And again, I don't want to diminish the importance of doing any of that. All of that is very important. But when we sit down to study the Bible, when we sit down to try to understand the words, the background, the meaning of the text, and especially when we take the time to prepare ourselves to be better witnesses to our friends and neighbors, well, frankly, that can be hard, really hard. So the people who do it are truly showing where their priorities lie and studying not only what they believe, but why they believe it, demonstrates they are placing a very high priority on the things of God. So how are we going to help the listeners do that today? In our last couple of episodes, we've spent a lot of our time talking about truth. We did that because we insist that the Bible is true. But the insistence would be meaningless if truth didn't exist in the first place. Well, let's start out by reviewing some of the progress that we've made so far. We found out that truth is that which corresponds to reality. That's called the correspondence view of truth. We found out that truth is absolute. And we have also found out that the absoluteness of truth cannot be denied without using the thoughts, the words, and the arguments from others that they want us to understand as being absolutely true. And we have found out that absolute truth is objective. In other words, it corresponds to the object to which it refers. Absolute truth is not dependent on our opinions, our observations, our calculations, our emotions, our attitudes, or our knowledge in any way. Absolute truth, to put it in a different way, simply is what is. So those are positive or affirmative statements about truth. But not all people agree with those affirmations. In our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we covered some of the philosophies that deny those affirmations. Why don't you briefly review some of those? I'd be glad to. Agnosticism says that absolute truth cannot be known, or at least it says that we can only know the appearances of things, but we cannot know the thing in itself. In other words, agnosticism denies that we can know the essence of the thing. Skepticism says that we should doubt all claims about absolute truth. Relativism affirms that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And postmodernism, which is vastly more common in our age, refuses to admit to any absolute truth or even to allow truth claims to be made. But none of those philosophies hold up under scrutiny, do they? In effect, each of those four philosophy self-destruct under the weight of its own affirmations. This is very similar to a point that recurred during our Lord of Logic series. 
The classic example of a statement that is self-refuting is that there is no such thing as absolute truth. We should ask anyone who agrees with that statement whether the statement they say they agree with is absolutely true. So this points out a concept that all thinking Christians must master. The first test we should always apply to a premise is the premise itself. If we would learn how to do that, we would quickly realize that much of what passes for sophisticated philosophy is actually nonsense. I agree. So let's take just a second and see how each of these philosophies fails its own premise or test. Agnosticism has two forms. The strong form of agnosticism affirms that all truth is unknowable. The soft form of agnosticism says that at least we can't know reality, even if we can know the appearances of reality. Well, if the agnostic were correct in his belief, then he and we can't even know the truth of the agnostic's own statement. Similarly, skepticism affirms that we should doubt everything, except, of course, the skeptic does not want us to doubt the statement that we should doubt all claims. The skeptic wants us to accept their instruction that we should doubt everything except when it comes to doubting the skeptic's claims. Said slightly differently, skeptics do not instruct us to doubt their claims. Only the claims of others, including those who say that absolute truth exists. All that really needs to be asked to the skeptic is, are you sure or should we both doubt what you're saying? Correct. Relativism very straightforwardly, just denies absolute truth. And relativism simply says, well, the best thing that we can ever do is just compare things to one another. So the reply that we would make to the relativist is, should I take what you're saying as absolute truth, or is it also just a relative truth? Now, postmodernism affirms the rule of what's called deconstructionism. And so that's to say that all statements about truth should be deconstructed. Except, of course, for the statement that the postmodernist makes to tell us that statements should be deconstructed. The postmodernist does not want us to deconstruct that statement. Postmodernism changes the rules of communication to say that the meaning a statement contains is determined by the listener, not the speaker. So postmodernism permits the listener to deconstruct language, such as changing the meaning of words to anything that really suits the listener's preferred worldview. So what we would say to the postmodernist is, do you want us to understand what you are saying? Or would you rather that we took whatever you're saying in the way that best suits our situation? So each of those four philosophies denies that absolute truth exists, but then goes on to use absolute statements to define its own belief system. So each philosophy actually affirms that there is, after all, some absolute truth, because if they always describe their own statements of belief as if they were absolutely true. Exactly. And just a reminder to our audience, we address similar points in our Lord of Logic series, which is available through most major podcasting apps. But part of the reason we're going over all this now is to reinforce the point that there are certain concepts that are fundamental to all correct thinking and logic. And it's becoming more and more essential that Christians become familiar with those concepts, isn't it? Yes, and primarily as a way of enabling Christians to stand firm in their faith because there are so many criticisms that are currently being hurled at Christians in today's modern culture. 
Now, some of these criticisms come from people who are seemingly well-educated and sophisticated, but as we've been describing, when you examine what they actually believe, it's just nonsense. So one principle Christians should always keep in mind when they encounter objections to their faith is to test the objection using its own criteria. And as you mentioned, the first test we should always apply to a premise is the premise itself. And doing that simply requires a relatively straightforward application of some of the most basic laws of logic. Now, many commentators, when they talk about logic, will recognize that there are at least three fundamental laws, or sometimes people call them principles, of all rational thought. And those laws are the law of identity, sometimes said A is A, the law of non-contradiction, A cannot be non-A at the same time and in the same relationship, and the third is the law of the excluded middle. It's got to be either A or non-A. Well, those sound simple and obvious enough, but let's go over them individually just to be sure we're all singing out of the same hymnal. Well, the law of identity simply says that something is and must be itself. Now, I know that sounds so simple that some people would wonder what the point is in even stating such a law or principle. But the need for the law of identity will become far more clear as we begin to consider questions about the legitimacy of faith or belief systems. A quick for instance, one claim that is often made in contemporary culture is that all religious systems are equally valid. So it's okay to believe whatever you want to believe as long as you're sincere. Now, this claim obliterates the very considerable differences in religious systems. Some religions are monotheistic, that's belief in one God. Other religious systems are polytheistic, that's belief in many gods. Well, these kinds of differing claims are irreconcilably different. And so as such, if one view is true, well, the others are false. And the process of establishing this very important distinction begins simply by recognizing that a thing, a person, a belief system is and must be itself. So when you combine the law of identity with the law of non-contradiction, you have the beginning of the logical process by which such distinctions, as in religious systems, are shown to be undeniably true and real distinctions. Formally stated, the law of non-contradiction says that, quote, A cannot be both A and non-A at the same time and in the same relationship, unquote. The classic example is a woman who may be both a mother and a daughter at the same time, but not in the same relationship. Mary cannot be the child of the same children to whom she is the mother. Right. Now again, the law of non-contradiction is so obvious that it hardly seems necessary to state it. But all too often today, it is necessary because there are belief systems and philosophies that say that it is possible to accept two completely contradictory statements at the same time as both being true. Again, the statement that all religions are valid is in essence that kind of a claim. But again, that's nonsense. The law of non-contradiction helps guard us from that kind of nonsense And like all of the basic laws, or what are sometimes termed first principles, the law of non-contradiction cannot be denied without using it. 
If someone contends that the law of non-contradiction isn't valid, then they are contending that the opposite premise must be true. So anyone who says that opposites can both be true does not give you the option of believing the opposite of their statement. So like other first principles, the law of non-contradiction is undeniable. Norman Geisler says, quote, The direct basis for the law of non-contradiction is its self-evident nature. And the indirect proof is shown by the fact that any attempt to deny it implies it. That is, it is a necessary condition for all rational thought, unquote. So what about the law of the excluded middle, either A or non-A? And this again, it's an obvious but a necessary observation. Now, a simple example of the law of the excluded middle would be the statement, I am sitting in a chair. Now, if I am actually sitting in a chair, all the other possibilities for the position of my body are excluded. I'm not standing. I'm not lying. I'm not sitting on a sofa or in a bathtub. I, for one, am glad about the bathtub thing. So am I. It's chilly in the studio this morning. Well, at any rate, there are many conditions that are necessary to demonstrate the existence of God where it has to be one way or another. I think we're going to need an example of what you're thinking about. Well, we spoke in one of our earlier episodes in this series about the fact that it is important to have an absolutely firm starting point for proving that God exists. Well, one such starting point is to demonstrate that we exist. And we said in that episode that one way we can demonstrate our own existence is through Descartes' famous maxim, I think, therefore I am. Something must be something before it can do anything. Well, thinking is doing something. Therefore, we must be in existence before we can think. So a slightly different way of stating the possible choices that we're choosing between is being or non-being. In other words, something can, and I'm not quoting Shakespeare, though it sounds like it, something can be or not be. There is no third possibility. Nothing can hide in the cracks between being and non-being. We either exist or we don't. But if we do exist, which we do, because we all think, then we are then off on a search to explain our existence. But that would be getting ahead of where we are in our line of reasoning. Well, it's a little ahead, but not by much, because one of the ideas we're combating, and we've alluded to this, is the idea that religious pluralism is valid. Religious pluralism is the belief that every religion is true. Religious pluralism says that each religion provides a genuine encounter with the ultimate, whoever or whatever that is. Religious pluralism says one may be better than the others, but all religions are adequate. In this view, all roads lead to God, all sincere belief systems are valid, and each religion is only an incomplete view of the whole picture. Some people who support religious pluralism like to use the parable of the three blind men and the elephant. One felt the leg and said, it's a tree. One felt the tail and said, it's a rope. One felt the side and said, it's a wall. Then they compare the notes on what they felt and learn they are in complete disagreement. The story is used to indicate that the reality may be viewed differently depending upon one's perspective, suggesting that what seems an absolute truth may be relative due to the deceptive nature of half-truths that people tend to understand only a tiny portion of reality 
and then extrapolate all manner of dogmas from that, each claiming that only his understanding is correct. This parable is used to refute the idea of absolute truth by implying that they are all right. Yes, religious pluralism is a very popular idea in our contemporary culture, and even some of the so-called mainline Christian denominations have accepted some form of it. And the parable that you cited is a common way religious pluralism is defended. But let's take a second look at the parable. Far from proving that all belief systems are equally valid, in fact, the parable does the opposite. I mean, look at the facts of the parable. All any of the men perceived was an elephant. And their sincerity in what they believed did not change that fact. Plus, all the men are blind. So they can't see what's in front of them and their visual impairment does not confer on them the power of sound judgment. So rather than all of them being right, they were actually all wrong. So the absolute truth, i.e. what corresponds to the way things actually are, is that first, the animal they felt was an elephant, and second, they were all absolutely wrong in their conclusions. So what do we get from this? What we get from this is that our goal should be to test for and determine the truth. And as we've said, sincerity is not a test for the truth. Correspondence to reality is. Religious pluralism evaluates Christianity this way. Quote, Christianity is exclusive. It claims to be the one and only true religion. This places Christians at odds with the modern movements to study comparative religion and work at the interfaith communing. One Christian apologist, Alistair McGrath, put it this way, quote, How can Christianity's claim to be truth be taken seriously when they are so many rival alternatives and when truth itself has become a devalued notion? No one can lay claim to possession of the truth. It is all a question of perspective. All claims to truth are equally valid. There is no universal or privileged vantage point that allows anyone to decide what is right and what is wrong, unquote. That's from his book, Challenge of Pluralism, page 365. So religious pluralism is one belief system that we can evaluate using the laws of logic that we've been discussing. And when we do, we find out that religious pluralism violates the law of non-contradiction and the law of the excluded middle. If we were to take religious pluralism seriously, we find out that it requires that we simultaneously embrace contradictory propositions. Let's go back to monotheism versus polytheism. Monotheism says that there is one and only one God. Polytheism says there are many gods. Well, if monotheism is true, then polytheism is false. And if polytheism is true, then monotheism is false. Those two basic, different religious premises cannot both be true, and there is no third possibility. So we have to make a choice between the two, and logic and reason tell us that the truth must be found in the premise that corresponds to reality. What you're saying is that logic tells us that there must be a real set of facts somewhere, even if we don't know them that answers our most basic questions of whether or not a God exists, and if so, which God. That's one of the two basic points that is essential to good Christian apologetics. At this point, we've learned enough to be absolutely certain of at least one thing. 
A religion that does not correspond to the facts is a false religion, because truth corresponds to reality in religion as well as everything else. And that brings us to step number two in the process of proving not only the existence of God, but of the truth, and that there is one and only one God, and that God is the God of the Bible. Right. Now, in the process of proving these two main points, we've now just finished the process of demonstrating that truth is absolute and it is knowable. And we've also seen that the laws of logic enable us not only to know that truth is absolute and knowable, but also those laws of logic enable us to move forward in evaluating the various competing claims that are made by competing religious systems. Now, when you encounter your friends and your neighbors who may be atheists or skeptics or relativists, people who knock on your door, or people who might be sitting beside you in a bus or in a church pew, well, this brief discussion about the nature of absolute truth might be all that you need to convince them that they are on the wrong track and that they need to move over to the truth side. But if a person cannot simply accept that truth is, if you will, telling it like it really is, then we're going to have a very tough time leading them to believe in the absolute truth of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to help them. For some people, just realizing that some of the current myths and popular belief systems lead to irreconcilable contradictions may be enough to put them on the road to truth. So here's where we are in our overall process of proving that there is a God and that that God is the God of the Bible. The claim that God exists is itself a truth claim. Well, we have shown that truth is absolute and knowable, although we have yet to tackle the particular truth claim that God exists. But at least we know that absolute truth exists. And we have seen that all the philosophies that disagree with the existence of absolute truth are self-refuting and self-defeating. And we've also seen that there are basic, self-evident, and irrefutable laws of logic which affirm that truth is knowable and absolute and also affirm the self-defeating nature of the objections to the existence of absolute truth. Those laws of logic, which are again sometimes called first principles, cannot themselves be refuted because the truth of that law must be assumed in any attempted refutation. So where we've come to so far in the process of demonstrating that God must exist and that that God is the God of the Bible is to come to a basic understanding of the nature of truth, of why the objections to the existence of truth that none of them hold any water, and also to understand some of the laws of logic that will enable us to help sort between the competing truth claims that we will examine as we move forward. Now we know that all of this can produce some head-scratching and even some headaches, but once Christians master these principles, it produces a Christian who can encounter the barrage of criticism aimed today at the Christian faith and emerge unscathed. Apologetics as an area of study isn't first and foremost a way to win arguments. It's a way to protect immature believers as well as hopefully rescue some others from the fire. This sounds like a great time to pray. Today, let's listen to a prayer for us all to receive the illumination we need to bring the light of truth to our friends, communities, and the world. Prayer for Illumination by the Holy Spirit 
great and mighty God, you are the searcher of men's hearts and the only true joy for our souls. We worship gladly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you came to take away our spiritual blindness and to make us alive to things of God. At Pentecost, you confirmed your presence in the world and established your dominion in the hearts of those who belong to the Son. We praise you because you are the one who strengthens us against the powers of wickedness that attack our humanity. By ourselves, we could never stand against the wiles of the evil one. But in you we have victory, for greater are you than Satan who is in the world. Holy Spirit, you regenerate our hearts and bring light to our mind. Since you fully possess all knowledge and wisdom, you are the supreme teacher who imparts wisdom and give us the ability to absorb and understand that which you teach. Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive to your leading. Time and again you have gone before us to find the path that we should travel, and you have never left us, even in those times we have grieved you or resisted your work. We marvel at the grace manifested to us by you, abiding with us and with the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is our God, and worthy to be praised. We bow before the light of our lives, the Lord of the universe, the Lamb of God. In Christ's precious name, we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.